0: so excited just to get to this story. I love the story. Uh, This is what we think of when we think of the Christmas story, and yes, there's other Christmas stories, but this is the only story really that talks about the birth of Jesus. We have Matthew, and Matthew talks about how the angel visits Joseph and proclaims or declares, hey, um, God sent in his son, and you're going to get to be the father of that. And then it kind of skips a little bit, and we come in back after the birth, and maybe even up to two years after that, we see the wise men come to the Um, not nativity anymore, but the house. Uh, So sorry if I just wrote Christmas for any of you. You can go home and smash the wise men. They're not there. Um, They're late. So put them out two years from now, and they'll be at the right time. Um, And then we have um, um, uh, Mark, who just ignores the Christmas story. He doesn't doesn't care about the birth of Jesus, apparently. He just skips that whole thing. And then we have Luke, which is like the largest um, collection of, of the nativity story And then we have um, John, who talks about Jesus before uh, Bethlehem, Jesus before time, and and it's such an amazing story, but uh, Luke has always been my favorite because it's the one we always talk about, this birth of Jesus. It's even found its way into like Charlie Brown, like this is the Christmas story, and um, I'm excited to get to just read that with you guys this morning, but I think it's important before we get there that we realize what Luke is doing as he writes this gospel or this narrative story of Jesus' life. And Luke tells us right at the beginning, it says in Luke 1.1, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So he's just saying right there at the first verse, A, I realize I'm not the only one who's written down the gospel story. Many people have done that. We have four of them. Who knows how many other people tried? But there are many narratives or, or stories about Jesus's life that have, that have tried to, been compiled. It says, and two, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So what is he saying? People have compiled these narratives and these aren't just like opinions a hundred years down the road or 200 years down the road removed from Jesus, but these are eyewitness accounts of people who were actually there and who saw these things. See, that's important to me because what I don't want today is, is some word that somebody wrote based on something they heard. Like from somebody's uncles, cousins, brothers, mothers, uh, twice removed. Like, I don't want that. I want something with a little, a little more substance than that. And what Luke is saying here is that these stories that he's compiled are stories from eyewitnesses who were actually there and saw these things take place. It says, this, this word has been handed down to us through them. And it says, it, it also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first. That's why he's starting kind of at the Christmas story here, right? To write to you an orderly sequence. And then he says, most honorable Theopolis, whoever that guy is, it doesn't matter. So that you may know the certainty of these things about which you have been instructed. So what's Luke doing when he compiles this narrative? He's going to the eyewitness accounts and he's writing down these stories in the most orderly sequence that he can. Luke, if you've ever read anything by Luke, is, is a guy who's meticulous with the details. He, he, he's somebody who's careful. He's somebody who's making sure that this story happened in this order, in this way. This is what Luke's objective is. And, and, and I think that's amazing because what we do know is Luke was not there at the birth of Jesus. Anybody have Luke in your nativity at home, like, just for the heck of it, you just have like a little Luke over in the corner with a book writing down, like, that's not what happened, right? Luke wasn't there, but Luke knows people that were there, namely Mary. These are eyewitness accounts of people who were actually there at these events. So I think it's amazing today that we have that credibility at the beginning of what we're about to read in two come from the actual mother of Jesus who was there when when this story took place. Isn't that amazing today? Isn't that cool that God was like, not, hey, you know what, Luke, 300 years down the road from Christ, I just want you to write down these things. He, he was like, hey, Luke, you, you know Mary, right? So why don't you just ask her? She was there. Let her fill you in on the details. That's amazing to me today because there's so much credibility in this word. Isn't that cool? Like this is not just some book of fairy tales or somebody's opinion or something that somebody wrote down at some point in time. This is a book that we can, we can really take with, with the credibility that it has. This is the word of God. And God's not speaking lies and fairy tales today. So we skip ahead and we get to Luke 2 where he's going to start talking about the Christmas story. And we're just going to go a couple verses today. But he starts out Luke 2, and it says the birth of Jesus. We're finally getting here, right? It's been four weeks now. We're going to get to hear how Jesus showed up on this planet. It says, in those days, or in the days around or surrounding Jesus' birth, a decree went out. Now, a decree, I have the definition for decree back there somewhere. It is just an official order issued by a legal authority. In other words, it's like a law. Caesar who we're going to get to in just a second, uh, emperor of Rome said, hey, uh, there's going to be a law, and that law is going to be um, that the whole empire is is going to be taxed. So it says, in those days, a decree or a law went out from Caesar Augustus. (laughs) Trying to not share that cough with you guys that the whole empire should be registered. Now, the empire he's talking about here is the Roman Empire, the the Roman Empire. That's a pretty big thing. I think I have a map because I have no concept of the Roman Empire. I'm not from 2,000 years ago, and I've never been to the Roman Empire, but this is the Roman Empire. All the orange-looking stuff, maybe salmon. Salmon, is that a color? Is that a real color? Um, this is the Roman Empire. All this stuff over here, there's one over there if you don't want to look over here. Uh, and Rome is like, a little bit under the A over here in Italia. So there's like a, a blip on the radar here, which is Rome. And then there's a guy in Rome who like controls all that other salmon color stuff. This a big place. See Judea, not really close. Syria, uh, this is modern day Turkey. But anyway, Rome owns all that stuff. Now, um, if you have all that land and, and you want things to happen in all that land, public services and things, you need some tax money. It's the same reason we supposedly tax people today, right? So um, he gets together and he's like, hey, you know what? Uh, we need to have um, some taxes. We need, we need to have some taxes. And the way we're going to figure that out so we've got to figure out how many people live in the Roman Empire. So Caesar Augustus enters the story. Now, Caesar Augustus is the first emperor of Rome, He reigned from 27, right? Is that the number I told you? Yeah, I knew I was going to forget that. He reigned from 27 um, B.C. over till about 14 A.D., so a pretty good span. He was 75 years old when he died, and he did a lot of cool things. One, he issued this Roman peace, this Pax Romana, where the, the unified Rome was not really fighting he was waging wars, kind of on the outside of Rome, trying to expand the territory and make it bigger. Uh, he set up the first uh, police force. He set up the first fire departments. Uh, he raised the first uh, standing army of Rome, and those things all cost money, right? So, so what he did was he was he actually started the first taxation system for this unified Rome, and that plays into our story pretty well today. He thought he was building an army, and what he was doing is working right into the plan of God. Um, and it says that he decided the whole empire should be registered. It's a good idea if you want to tax people to know how many people you get to tax. So it says the the first registration, so anyway, there was a series of registrations, and they didn't all take place all at the same time. It was like a rolling registration. There were more than one every 14 years, I think, is how often they did them. But the first registration that ever took place was while Quirinius, um, pretty insignificant, got to the story, but Corinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Now Corinius is not really a very important guy. He was a Roman citizen who was somewhat of a warrior and got some different positions out of that. He, he actually did govern Syria from, I think, um, six... AD to 12 AD you know like that doesn't matter to me but some people are history people and maybe you want to know and then some people are looking for like flaws and holes in the story and that's why I'm bringing that up today Um, there's a there's a problem that comes here right because if he was governing Syria from 6 AD to 12 AD we know that Christ was supposed to be born over in BC right And, and he was born in the reign of King Herod and King Herod the Great died during 4 BC. So it looks like there's an issue here between Luke and Matthew. Some of you are like, I've been in church a million times, and I don't really care about that, and I just want to hear. But I want you to know today it's okay to use your brain, and God's not afraid of you to in, to investigate things. That's that's fine, and we can do that up on stage today. Um, now, the problem with this is it looks like there's, there's a hole um, where either Luke or Matthew has messed up something. Because Matthew puts the birth of Christ somewhere before, 4 B.C., and then, and then it looks like Luke is saying that it happened during Quirinius' reign, which was from 6 to 12 A.D., and those two dates don't overlap if you ever know anything about time. Like, that just doesn't work out. But I want you to know today, like, the Bible can be trusted. And you're like, well, there's a hole there, so I don't know how the Bible can be trusted. Well, here, here's why I say that. Um, this word governing for us is like Governor. Corineus was a governor of, of Syria, but he was from six to twelve A.D. That's true. Uh, but the word he uses here, the word Luke uses here, is just a word that means in charge of something. And the very thing he was probably in charge of was this was this first census. It's, he wasn't the governor of Syria, but he was. He was a man that was in charge of something in the Roman Empire, and probably what it was was rolling out this census. And you're like, well, that's that's a, that's a strange argument to make. Well, let me, let me just put it this way. Luke is not writing this word thinking 2,000 years from now, people that don't know the facts are going to sit in a room and just absorb it because it makes sense if you don't know anything, right? He's writing this, and some of the people that are hearing this are going to be, intimately um, knowledgeable of the details of Quirinius and the census and and all these other things that are happening around this time. If there was a hole here, a real hole, do you think that this really would have made it 2,000 years later? you think it would have passed the screening process of the early church? Because people would have been like, hey, uh, that's not possible, Luke, because the census was this year, this time, this thing, right? And it it's, doesn't match up. See, the, the truth of it is, is, is he's writing this to people who would have been there for the census and would have seen these things and heard these things and, and lived in these, in these moments. And really, if you were trying to just make up something and you weren't sure about the facts, what would you do? You'd just leave out the facts, right? Because does it change the story any if we're like, hey, um, Jesus came and uh, everybody had to be taxed. So everyone went and was registered to their own town. We don't really need um, Caesar Augustus, do we? Because who cares? I gave you a bunch of facts about Caesar Augustus, but if it was just, it happened sometime, does it, does it, does it change anything? Not really. Corinius, who is that guy? Like nobody even really knows, nobody cares, right? Quirinius, nobody had a problem with Corinius before he walked in this morning. Do we need Corinius in the story to make it an important story about the birth of Jesus? No, we didn't need any of that stuff. What what God is doing is he's nailing down for people the, the fact that this is a story that's not some fairy tale set in the enchanted woods somewhere kind of off in Wonderland, uh, but this is a story that takes place in real time with real people with real dates, and he's like investigate, investigate these things. So don't, don't just take my word for it, dig into the word, because the truth of it is today, God gave us brains and he meant for us to use them. And you don't have to just blindly follow something because some person says it from a stage. Like, God can be trusted. I probably can't, but God can be. So he puts these facts and these dates and these people in here because he wants us to know, like, Jesus is not some fairy tale or myth. He is the Son of God who came and he stepped down from heaven to earth to be born as a baby. He grew up, he lived a perfect life, and at the end of that life, he died so you could live. And that's rooted in reality today. So he puts all these things and these people in here so we know, like, go, go look it up today. This is a real thing. So Quirinius, he, he sets up this census in this area of Syria and Judea um, for Caesar Augustus. Eventually, maybe because he's done such a good job, he'll be promoted to governor. And it says in verse 3, so everyone went to be registered. Each to his own town because that's what you do when the government tells you to do it and they will hurt you if you don't. So all these people in this area had to go back to their own town to be registered. Now that's important to the story because right now, Joseph and Mary are not in the place that God needs them to be to accomplish the thing that God needs to accomplish. This is in four. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the family line of David so you have Joseph and Mary who are living in Nazareth right we talked about that a couple weeks ago and Nazareth is in this upper area of Israel Israel like is kind of like Tennessee if you just took it and flipped it you have three regions in in Israel and the the northern region is, is Galilee we have Samaria, which we won't talk about because that's where the bad people live. And then we have Judea down there at the bottom. And, and Nazareth is the city that, that they're living in. They've been living in. It's a population of about 400 people. It's a small city. Um, the problem is Nazareth is not the place the Messiah is supposed to come from. Like factual information. Matthew, two weeks ago, or last week, um, when, when um, Herod said, hey, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? What did they answer Well, in Micah, it says that he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So I'm pretty sure Bethlehem, right? And we have an issue here because Mary and Joseph are living somewhere that that is not where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And they have to get to Bethlehem, which is in the lower area or lower region of Israel in, in, in the south. They have to get to Bethlehem of Judea. Now, this is separated by somewhere between 70 and and 80 miles, Uh, 70 miles if you go straight. If you go a different route, obviously it adds miles to it. But this is the journey they have to go on because Joseph is of the house and the family line of David, now, David is the most important, probably, king that's ever lived in Israel. He's the guy that, like, they're still today looking for, the, this new king who's going to come in, and he's going to set up this this family line of David. He's going to come in, he's going to set up this eternal kingdom that's going to last forever. That's who they're looking for as the Messiah, and because the Messiah has to come through the line of David, now, Joseph is not really an important man. It's kind of like me saying today, like I'm related to Dolly Parton. It's a cool story, but I don't have any more money than I did five minutes ago. I don't know that I don't think I'm related to Dolly Parton, by the way. I'm just throwing that out there. But but it wouldn't matter if I was, right? Oh, I'm the great-grandson great, 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 great of George Washington, right? Like that's a cool story, but I'm not the president. It doesn't actually make a difference. And this is the same kind of idea. We have Joseph, who's of the house and the family line of David, and he has to go back to Bethlehem to be registered because that's the city of David. He's got a cool relative, but he's got a cool relative that the Messiah has to come through. You see how God's setting up the story to, to accomplish exactly what God wants to accomplish. So anyway, they have to make this journey of 70 to 80 miles, and they have to do it, by the way, while Mary is pregnant. It says the. They had to be registered along with, by the way, Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Mary and Joseph at this point in time are still not married. Um, They're engaged, which is a legally binding contract. It's just like they were married. They just haven't had the wedding yet. But they have to go be registered, and Mary is pregnant. And when it says Mary's pregnant, it doesn't mean like a month pregnant or two months pregnant. Like she's very pregnant, and we can see that because we're about to travel 70 to 80 miles and... um, and she's going to get there and have a baby. It's going to take maybe four to ten days to get there, and when she gets there, she's going to have a baby. So she's just a few days away, but anyway, so you can see that 70 to 80 miles like that. I did one more map today um, back there. There we go. Um, so this is the map from Nazareth up here on the top down to Bethlehem. You see uh, Jerusalem, I told you it was north last week because i 'm wrong sometimes, but it 's actually south. You have to go past Jerusalem to get to bethlehem it's it 's a long distance, and you have a couple different choices: one they could come the straight route, mountainous obviously, go through Samaria. they may have done that they also may have came over like most Jews would do, skip Samaria and come down the Jordan River and then over to Jerusalem and then down to Bethlehem. But either way, 70 to 80 miles pregnant is kind of an issue, right? It would be like us taking off today and walking from here uh, to Cleveland, Tennessee. Anybody been to Cleveland, Tennessee? It's about 81, 82 miles from Knoxville. Um, so if, if you were just walking today to Cleveland, it would take you three to four days to get there if you walked about eight hours a day. Um, so that's, that's a long way, right? Anybody want to go? I'll, I'll meet you there. I'm going to take my car because it's going to take me a lot less time than that. I'm not going to walk for four days. I don't want to do that. But imagine doing that as a woman that's nine months pregnant. That is not a fun trip for Joseph. Um, (laughs) Mary probably was uncomfortable as well. Um, But very pregnant. Through the mountains, either way, right? Short mountain distance if you come up from the river, or lots of mountains if you come um, straight down. Not a fun journey for a lady that's nine months pregnant. But this is very much the plan of God. This is very much the plan of God. Difficult, frustrating. Mary's probably like, hey, God, um, if you could just not do this census right now, that'd be great. All right? I'm pregnant. Didn't know if you realized that. Um, it's your, your kid, so you probably should have. Um, don't really want to go walk through the mountains. Don't want to do this but this is very much the plan of God. See, it looks like a very difficult thing, and I'm sure it was, and there's probably lots of struggle and annoyance and frustration in that, but God had to take him through struggle and frustration and annoyance because he had a plan, and his plan was that the Messiah would not be born in Nazareth, but he'd be born in Bethlehem. And it took the struggle and annoyance and frustration to get them where God would have them to be. So as so says they went up to to be registered along with Mary, who was very pregnant. And it says in 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, it doesn't give us a like a timetable on how long they'd been there, but I'm, I'm going to give you um, a timetable here in just a second. Um, I love how the Bible just makes that so calm, right? I've never been there for an actual birth, but I've, like, seen enough of them on TV and things like that and heard enough stories that I don't think it's this calm. Oh, by the way, she was just going to have the baby. No big deal. There's probably some, like, screaming and yelling that happened in there because what happens there— is the contraction start. We roll up to Bethlehem and the the breathing starts and the, oh man, this baby is coming right now starts. Like that's what's happening in the story. And it says, then she gave birth, look so calm. "Uh, Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. Wow, that was easy, right? And she wrapped him snugly in cloth and they laid him in a feeding trough. And listen to this, here's the timetable. Because there was no room for them at the inn. They didn't just roll up to Bethlehem, stay there for two weeks, and then she was like, hey, uh, you know, let's just have this baby right now. They didn't have a place to stay at this point in time. I think probably what happened in the story is they walked up the hill to Bethlehem, they got to Bethlehem, and it was like, hey, we're, we're here, and now the baby's coming. Okay, that this baby is going to happen right now. So there was this moment probably where it was like, hey, Joseph, I think the baby's coming. He's like, no, the baby can't come right now. And he's like, no, it's coming. And then there was this thing going down out here in the field and Joseph probably goes into panic mode because if I was there, right, and I knew we didn't have anywhere to stay, and we just rolled up to Bethlehem and we don't live here and we're from 80 miles away and and we don't really have the resources and the support system and all the things we need in this place, like, I'm going to start wondering, like, what are we going to do? Because this wasn't my plan. Like, I wasn't thinking, roll up to Bethlehem, baby's going to come the moment we get there. This wasn't my plan, but it was God's plan. So he started looking around, like, oh, we got got to have somewhere. Bethlehem's a city of like 300 people. So Bethlehem does not have the infrastructure that we need to have like 72 hotels. There's not like a Marriott and a Hilton and all those things. There's not a Starbucks in Bethlehem. It's not that big yet. 600 people is max for a Starbucks. So anyway, we don't have all those resources yet. So they get to Bethlehem and there's an inn. No room for them in the inns. That's not how it's phrased, right? there's an inn there's a lodging place a place that they could be the problem is there is a census and everybody has to go back to their town so you have the people that already live there right but then you've brought in all these people that also have to be registered and guess what uh no vacancy rolls up hey hey hey, hey, hey we got to have a room there is no room but my wife's pregnant, It doesn't matter, It doesn't change the fact that there's no room, right? Like, you, you could, I guess you could sleep in the floor. There's nowhere for you to be in the inn is what happens in the, in the situation. There's nowhere for you to stay. There's not one place, not one room, no vacancy. You can't come in here. So then Joseph has to figure out, like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Because um, she's going to have this baby, whether we get a room in the inn or not. Aunt Martha doesn't live here, right? there's there's like nowhere to go. So he's got to figure something out or this is going to be like the most epic roadside pregnancy ever, right? He's going to deliver the son of God in the back of the car here. Like this is not going to work out well. So he looks around and he sees what we think of as a little barn, like you see the little cute barn with the moss on the roof, and it's like just very stale and sterile. It's just a nice little environment. That's not there. By the way, more than likely what it is, it's like a hole or a cave in the side of a hill. And they go into this place, and this place where the animals sleep and eat and other things animals do is the place where the Son of God is born. Doesn't say how long the labor is. Sorry about that. Doesn't say if she yelled, "I hate you, Joseph." And it wouldn't be his fault anyway. I guess it wouldn't make sense. Um, he could come back. Not my fault. I didn't do nothing. Uh, not my baby. Uh, but anyway, the, this is the environment that this baby's born into and it says that she wrapped him after he's born right it makes it so quick it probably wasn't so quick um wraps him snugly in clothes and then cloth and then lays him in a feeding trough a place where animals eat because there ain't no bed in the cave anybody ever look at that and think man that's just the weirdest story like if you were today to sit down and to just write, like right, like you're, you're not Luke, but just pretend you were Luke and you're just writing a story today and you're writing this story about how God sent his son into the world. Is this the story that you would come up with? This is not how deities are supposed to be born, right? Like if a deity's ever born, this is not the way a deity's supposed to be born. Like, oh yeah, there was a census and my mom had to walk 70 miles while she was very pregnant. And then we got to a town and nobody really cared because nobody knew Joseph and Mary because they're nobody's from Nazareth. And they rolled up to the inn and guess what no reservations um and and they got there cuz you know Joseph he forgot to call ahead um and and there was no vacancies and then they 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 had the son of god in in a cave where animals eat and and get rid of food right and laid him in a feeding trough this is obviously the story of the birth of the son of god does any anybody think you would come up with that see nobody would come up with that because Man, if we were to, to write a story about the birth of a deity today, where where would where, where we make them pop up, right? Come to some influential rich household probably. there some some person who ruled over some area of land, or if it was like this religious deity, um, then there may be even the temple. Like it would just come down in like a beam a lot and a fireball, a little chariot. Like and there's the son of God wrapped up in the fire chariot. Because that's like a, a majestic story, right? And this is like a messy story. This, is, this whole thing's a mess. You, you look at it. Like, like, <laughs> how frustrated would you be if you were Mary and Joseph? Hold on, wait. Back a chapter ago when you said that I was going to have the, the son of God, I, I thought, man, we could at least get some clean sheets. I didn't know that, like the 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 nurse in the room was going to be the cow. I didn't know that. I didn't I didn't know that I signed up for that or Joseph. Right, like, hey God, I didn't know when you said that I got to be the dad that what that meant is we were leaving the house when my wife was nine months pregnant and we were coming eighty miles down the road through the mountains in a in a safe in an unsafe space. I didn't know that's what we were going to do. That wasn't the plan they had in mind. They probably thought, oh, we'll just have this kid up in Nazareth with all the family and, you know, everybody will be there. People have done this before and they know what's going on. And this is... But but that's not where God wanted them, right? It wasn't even the plan of God. It was their plan, but it wasn't the plan of God. See, I think sometimes we, we think that our plan makes more sense than God's plan or our plan is the only plan that can be. And it's like what, what in reality is true is that it never really is it our plan that works out very well, is it? Isn't it amazing that I don't get to plan my plan? Because if I got to plan my plan, I'd be in a bigger mess than this. So God has a plan, and God's plan is the most unlikely plan. Can I just say that again? Because this this is like the story right here, right? Like, God has a plan. Look, Micah, hundreds of years before this, right? Like, hey, by the way, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah, hundreds of years before this. By the way, um, Messiah is going to come through a virgin. God has a plan. He, he wrote the plan. The, the whole story is the plan. Like we can see the plan, but we ignore the plan because his plan just isn't, isn't what we think our plan should be. Because, I mean, if, if Joseph and Mary wanted it easy, hey, read the Bible. Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. You're two months pregnant. You're healthy now. Let's go now. Right, but God's plan is going to happen maybe it wouldn't be such a mess if we would just get on board with God's plan hey call ahead Um, we're going to Bethlehem because God said the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem we should probably get a room six months out there's a census coming right Maybe the mess isn't because God's plan is a mess. Maybe it's because we're not on board with God's plan. So we see this story and we see all these things that take place and what's amazing to me is is even with all the obstacles and the the reasons and the things that really could have gone wrong, like like this is a lady that's very pregnant, like at the most 10 days out from having this baby when they leave, she could have had that baby anywhere along the way. Um, God's gonna accomplish his plan in spite of us. Isn't that cool? God's gonna do his plan. Now we get to, figure out how hard we're going to make that on ourself, but God's going to do his plan. And you're like, well, what does that matter to me today? Um, because some of us are in a mess right now, right? Like we look at our life and we're like, if I was writing the story, like this is not the way I would write the story. Like if I was just filling in all the blanks and the dots, like this is not how I would pick for my story to go. This is not maybe the thing that I would put in this place. I'd probably trade that and I'd put this thing here because all the things that are part of my story are not things that I necessarily want to be part of my story. I would prefer it a different way. And I just want to say to us today, even with those pieces that maybe we wouldn't prefer, that God is still in charge of our story and God's glory will be accomplished in in some way through our story. Our story maybe looks a lot more like mess than it does majesty, but maybe what we need to do today is to say to God, like, hey, I need you to insert your majesty into my mess. Is it any less amazing that that in this crazy story, God sent his son to be born? Does it make Jesus any less deity that he was born in a cave than he was born in a palace? Does it change anything? So my story may be like the most crazy looking thing ever in the world, but it's not going to make Jesus any less Jesus to step into whatever mess I got going on today. So what I need is for Jesus, for God to insert his majesty into my mess. And what I also need is for him to insert his glory into my crazy story. Whatever we're going through today, I just, I just want to say, because I know, I know some of you are struggling. And, and I know some of you guys, like, I, I talk to you about it sometimes. And you're like, man, I, I don't know why this is happening. And I don't know what it's happening. I don't know why it's happening either. But I know that our God is a sovereign God and that even when, when it doesn't look like it's his plan, it's always his plan. It's always every single time it's plan. It's not maybe how we would write the story, but it's always how he writes the story. And if he's writing the story, he will get glory. So whatever you're going through today, I just want you to know, like, what you, what you don't need today is a rewrite. You know, you don't need a mulligan for golfers, right? We don't need a redo we don't, need, we don't need to try again. We don't, we don't need to do something else. What we need to do is invite God into our story exactly where it is. And some of you are like, well, um, I've already invited God into my story. That's probably true eternally for a lot of us. But have you invited him into this situation today? Did you invite him like on the trip today? Did you invite him into the cave today? Did you invite him to whatever area of the story that that you're hating on today in your life? Did you invite him into that spot and say, you know what, God, I need you to put your glory in my crazy story, in this thing right here. I want you to get the glory in this thing right here, whatever this is. I don't even like what I'm going through. I want people to talk about what you're doing in this thing today. So come insert your majesty into my mess and come put your glory in my crazy story. I I love this story. I love this story. Because to me, what this says is the son of God is not afraid to step into a situation that's maybe just not so clean. He was born in a cave and laid in a place where animals backwash. What it means to me is God's not afraid to to take hold of the crazy that's going on in our life and get right in the middle of it. There's nothing going on. There's nothing you're going through today that Jesus will not put himself right in the center of. And that is the heart of the beginning of the Christmas story. God's not afraid of a mess because he is so majestic. He can turn your mess around. God's not afraid of your crazy story because He's got so much glory. Two thousand years ago, people two thousand years from now, people are going to be sitting talking about how a nine month pregnant lady walked to Bethlehem and be like, Man, that's just so crazy. And if he can do that in this, what can he do in your story? Let's pray.